The British call it whinging, also known as bellyaching, whining, complaining, grumbling. Whatever it's called, we know what it is, and we know how to do it, since it seems to be part of human nature. It's been said of grumblers that when opportunity comes knocking, they complain about the noise. If we complain and grumble, well, it runs in the family, because we see it throughout the history of Israel, the people of promise. But it's also warned against by Jesus, James, and Paul in the New Testament. You know, we've been on this uh, journey with the children of promise since the beginning of the summer, beginning with the departure of Abraham from his home to seek the place that God would show him. We then met the various members of Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then we turned the corner to meet Moses as we moved into Exodus, this Hebrew son raised among Egyptian royalty, self-exiled to the desert after murder then called to free Israel from slavery. Behind all of this is God's promise to make for himself a people, to provide for them land and a good future, to be present with them. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is the big story. And this story plays out over generations, of course, hundreds of years, and it's the promise that is constant, along with the brokenness and the frailty of the people. That's pretty constant, too. God will be true to his word. The people will struggle. God will be faithful. The people will stumble. And yet God is moving them forward, fulfilling his purposes, showing mercy, keeping promise. For a few weeks, we took a break from that to look at Matthew 18 as it came up in the lectionary, discipleship lessons for a faithful uh, church community. <clears throat> but really, the insights are very similar, aren't they? I mean, it's mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice, handling conflict in the church, offering and receiving forgiveness. And what Israel is learning in following God is what Jesus' disciples are learning about being a Christian community. And it's also what we're learning about the faithfulness of God and what it means to be his people in this world in this time. And so in Exodus 16, as we move back to this earlier part of the big story, we have this wonderful provision of bread in the wilderness for the people of God. And you know, it forms a core part of, of Israel's story and identity. It's referred to over and over again in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself sort of steps into that stream as he gives miraculous bread to the people. An episode that we looked at not that long ago. And it carries forward into our own narrative as we receive bread, the bread from heaven each week during the Eucharist. Jesus himself is described as the bread of life. And so when we hear that, it's about connecting stories, ours with the liberated Hebrews, and realizing that the stories are one and the same. We receive provision from God's hand. We're dependent upon the goodness of God just as they were. But we can also respond like those in Exodus and miss the gifts that God is giving. It's possible to miss seeing his glory. I mean, think about Israel's situation. Just a few weeks earlier, they had been enslaved, oppressed under the heel of the pharaohs. 
And through God's action, they're free. They're, they're saved through the Red Sea. There's a tremendous jubilant song of salvation that they all sing, and then they're given sweet water in the wilderness. Now they need bread to eat, and it's a real need. I mean, they're not, it's, it's a real thing that they're facing. But time after time, God has shown up for them, has provided, has given miraculously out of his abundance. And time after time, they have cried out in their need. They knew victory in every circumstance. But in each instance, it was soon replaced with grumbling and with lack of faith. They had seen God act. They had been overwhelmed. But they were slow learners, and they had no memory and so they complain, they grumble, they whine, they fail to see God at work on their behalf. And it's because they did not remember. And because they did not remember, they did not trust. We've talked about memory, I think, quite a bit here at Redeemer. And the importance of rehearsing the wonders of God and God's goodness. That's what we do in worship each week, actually. We remember God's saving act in Jesus Christ. We tell ourselves the story again. And like young children, we don't tire of hearing it because we know it's life and freedom for us. We know it's given undeservedly, grace upon grace to us and also to the world. But it's easy to forget, especially when life gets tough and situations difficult, when things make no sense. It's most important then to remember, to recall, to reflect. If not, we can also be tempted into the place of grumbling and pointless complaint. And we know by experience that it's a place of diminishing returns. So the Israelites here in uh, <clears throat> chapter 16 had already forgotten. In fact, their memory was so bad that when they faced hunger, they wanted to go back to Egypt into bondage. Maybe it wasn't so terrible, they thought. I mean, after all, they had bread in Egypt. But they'd forgotten that it was the bitter bread of harsh labor. God was offering them the free bread of liberation by his own hand. And they just couldn't seem to make the connection that what God had already done for them, God would do again. They couldn't see that God's care for them was constant and committed and trustworthy. In the life of faith, memory is absolutely essential for embracing the future and they were struggling to remember God's goodness even day to day. So when they forgot, and when we forget, grumbling can be heard. <clears throat> and it matters, because as long as we're grumbling, we can't fully recognize the Lord's good provision for us. So what is grumbling? <clears throat> I think most parents know what, know what it is, right? Well, Scott Hubbard, who is a writer, has defined it in this way. He says, grumbling is discontentment made audible. The heart's contempt escaped through the mouth. It's the sound we make when we have a strong craving for something we don't have, and we begin to grow restless. I would add that grumbling can also be the voice of anxiety and the voice of fear. We all know this, and certainly I do, and I have to admit I'm guilty of it. I can grumble. It's human nature, but it's dangerous to the soul. Hubbard goes on to say this, unfair, says some voice within us. That's not right, says another. Desires become expectations. Expectations become rights. 
And instead of bringing our disappointment to God and allowing his words to steady us, we let unmet desire fester into discontentment. We grumble because we've diligently listened to a voice other than the Lord's. And we've begun to repeat those words. Instead of crying out to God, help me trust you are good. We mutter and we spill and we vent. The equivalent of saying, God, your ways are not good. Now, grumbling is different than saying things are not right. So hear me, because there is a place for voicing concern, for addressing things that are unjust. So for me to caution against grumbling this morning is not a way of trying to silence voices that are speaking out in appropriate lament. Because actually we see this all over the Psalms and in Job and in other places. Lord, deal with this. Come down and <clears throat> make things right. How long, O oh Lord? See, that's not grumbling because it rests in trust and in relationship. When people grumble, it's usually not to those who can actually address the need. And rarely are grumblers interested in doing the work to be part of the solution. In grumbling, there is a refusal to trust, a denial of God's good gifts and intentions. It leads to a smallness of heart that turns inward and shuts down awareness of the provision that God has made. Grumbling is sin in that it keeps us from growing and it separates us from God's presence. God sends manna, something totally unknown, and also quail. God did this to meet the daily physical needs of the Israelites, but even more so to display his glory. However, as long as they were caught up in their grumbling and complaining, they couldn't see it. The amazing thing is that God fed them anyway, not because they were faithful, but because he was and is. And you know, they ate manna for a whole generation. <laughs> they did. When they entered the promised land, the manna stopped. It was bread for the wilderness. Aaron took some of the manna, and he saved it in a jar, and later it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. That's so Israel would remember. Israel would remember God's gracious provision in the desert. Remembering is the antidote to grumbling. Remembering, which leads to trust and to gratitude. Cultivating thankful hearts is all about remembering the goodness of God and resting in God's promises for the future. When we live in gratitude, even in the most difficult situations, there's no room for grumbling or whining. It just gets kind of pushed out of our lives. David Brooks has called gratitude the laughter of the heart. And we want to live in that place. So what did Jesus tell them? He said the vineyard owner paid the workers exactly what he promised. He'd been faithful, but they were envious of those who worked fewer hours and received the same pay. They were not grateful that they'd been treated exactly as they'd been promised. Are you envious because I'm generous? See, grateful and trusting hearts will crowd out complaint and allow us to know God's goodness and allow us to share it with others. John Henry Jowett was a, a British preacher of an earlier generation, about a hundred years ago or so, and he said this about gratitude. He said, gratitude is a vaccine, an antitoxin, and an antiseptic. 
What did he mean? He meant that gratitude, like a vaccine, can prevent the invasion of a disgruntled, discouraged spirit. Like an antitoxin, gratitude can prevent the effects of the poisons of cynicism, criticalness, and grumbling. And like an antiseptic, a spirit of gratitude can soothe and heal the most troubled spirit. Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name, the psalmist says. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Remember, remember the marvels he's done. For God remembered his holy word and Abraham his servant. So he led forth his people with gladness, his chosen with shouts of joy. When you came in uh, today, or maybe if you've ever been by here in the evening especially, you'll notice that we have these beautiful lampposts out here uh, in the front of the church property. And... They provide light. They're actually from the old Moraine Hotel here in town, so there's a little bit of of local history. I love them because actually they remind me of another place. They remind me of Oxford, England, where C.S. Lewis uh, lived. And there's lampposts all over the place. There's a hidden one on the way to the Turf Tavern. There's one behind the, the lamb and flag where Lewis would meet with his friends. And in thinking about that, I thought, you know, if, if if, if, if I can ever get the Chronicles of Narnia into a sermon, I, I'm going to do it. I, I always try to do that when I can. And so um, there's a section of the last battle that actually refers to what we've been talking about today. Now, if you know the Chronicles, then you know the series of, of stories. And in the last battle, we're at the end of Narnia, really. It's about to be, uh, you know, kind of morphed into, into something new, kind of a new heaven and a new earth, so to speak. But there is a battle, there's a terrible battle that has to take place, and people have to take sides. There's a stable, and the stable has been the place where this kind of false god has been kept in order to to trick the people and to have them turn against Aslan, the lion, who's the true king. And everything kind of comes together in this stable at the very end of the book. And the former kings and queens of Narnia are there, along with a bunch of dwarfs, and they're in the dark, pretty much. I mean, it seems like that. And the dwarfs are blinded by their complaining and their grumbling, and they refuse to see the reality of what's going on around them. And in the midst of this stable, Aslan comes, the lion, the true king, and he appears. And Lucy, one of the queens, this girl now, (laughs) says... Aslan, could you, will you do something for these poor dwarfs? Dearest said, Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and he gave a low growl. Low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. Aslan raised his head and he shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees, pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, another said he got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said that he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips, and they said, ah, 
Fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Why, why address this today? Why even go there? I mean, obviously the lectionary brings it to us. Because actually, Redeemer is not a grumbling church. I, I, I hear very few grumbling voices, and that's a blessing. But if there were ever a time we might be tempted, I think it's in this time. The reminder for us today in this is that the witness of hope and help and healing is so powerful. It's what the people of God know. It's what we've been given as gift, and it's what we can offer in Jesus' name. I think the next, I mean, it's been hard, right? This, this year has been difficult, but I think the next few months will be very divisive and very traumatic throughout the world, but especially in our own nation. I keep up on the news. I watch different sources for the news, and I, I read different things. And what I'm hearing in the last few days is people who are saying, from all sides of the aisle, saying, we're afraid for our country right now. We're actually frightened. And you see, our world desperately needs voices of belief, not cunning, but belief, not grumbling or complaint, but belief. It needs to be reminded that there is a larger story of good news being worked out that we are all called to and invited to, a story of good and abundant provision, a story of peace and reconciliation among peoples, a story of health and flourishing, a story of trust instead of anxiety of hope instead of despair, of rescue and redemption, a story of God's own provision for a time of wilderness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.